Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. My name is Adam. I'm the pastor at Faith on Hill. We are a church in the Milwaukee, Oak Grove, and Gladstone area. Every Sunday morning, we gather both in person and online at 10.30 a.m. In person, we're wearing masks, we're socially distanced, uh, we're doing all the things we need to do to stay safe. Uh, Also, people have asked how kids are handled. You know, with uh, all of the rules and the guidelines, how we've done it is this. When kids come in to our Sunday morning service, there is a station where they can get a a sealed bag prepackaged with coloring sheets, crayons, some activities, prepackaged snacks, so that they are um, welcomed into our service, but then they have something to do as well. Uh, some families, they just put a blanket out in the back of the sanctuary. They put some toys out, and their kids just have a fun little picnic back there. Uh, some families take advantage of our kids' zone. And so we uh, have, they maybe stay in for the songs, and then they go back to our kids' zone in the fellowship hall where there's toys and games and activities. And then there is a uh, TV setup that's running a video feed of the sermon so adults don't feel like they're missing out. Now, online, uh, we are on our website, faithonhill.com, and on our Facebook page. We want to say welcome if you are here with us online on either of those platforms. Uh, Say hello in the chat. Let us know who's here, how we can pray for you. If you're on Facebook, feel free to share the video. We also have an audio-only version that's available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. During the week, we gather together in small groups, Wednesday nights at 7 is our primary Zoom small group, and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. We gather together in community. We pray for one another. Uh, We go through questions that are designed to take us deeper through the things that are talked about during this uh, uh, sermon series, and uh, it's one of my favorite things we do all week. So you can email me, Adam, at faithonhill.com for a Zoom link. We also have a a teaching podcast that's released in the week uh, called the 20-Minute Bible Study. We're currently going through the book of Exodus 20 minutes at a time, and that is a video version on our Facebook, audio version on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Again, you just have to search faithonhill.com. If you have a Bible, open to the book of Daniel chapter 9, and we are going to be studying together what it is to be exiles in an unbelieving land. Final announcement is that we will have a Good Friday service. And it sounds like we will be joining together with Life Journey Community Church. They have been using our fellowship hall on uh, Sunday nights. And so we're going to join with them for a a socially distanced and safe Good Friday service. And then Easter Sunday, Faith on Hill will be uh, both in person and online celebrating Jesus' resurrection and victory over sin and death. Let's study God's word together. Daniel chapter 9 says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of Yahweh given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love 
with those who love him and keeps his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Yahweh, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithlessness to you, we and our kings, our princes and our ancestors, are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. Yahweh, our God, is merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed against your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us by our rulers, bringing us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and our iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Yahweh, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to Yahweh my God for his holy hill. And we'll pause there and find out what happens next week while he's doing all this. Daniel is reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. He would have 
had his ministry both before and somewhat current to Daniel. So um, Jeremiah was years older than Daniel, and he prophesied to the kings and the people of Jerusalem, repent for the judgment of God is coming, and they did not listen to him. And Jeremiah was still prophesying around the time of Daniel chapter 1 and 2 when Daniel as a young man was taken into captivity. Even during the the siege and the, the desecration of Jerusalem, even during the time when Daniel and these, these people from Jerusalem were taken captive by the Babylonians, even then the people would not repent. Why is it though Seventy years later, Daniel chapter 9 takes place roughly 70 years later. Why is it that this is the first time Daniel seems to connect with the fact that the prophet Jeremiah had, had prophesied, yes, you will be brought into captivity, you will be brought low, you will be humbled, but this punishment, this judgment will only last 70 years. Why is that seemingly new information to Daniel? couple ideas. Either he had never read it before. That's possible. We live in a luxurious age of accessibility, almost unheard of in human history. In Jesus's day, unless you were very rich, you would have not had a copy of the scriptures for yourself. The community would have held a copy of the Torah, of the writings, of the prophets in the synagogue. And if you wanted to read the scripture, you had to come and you had to do so in community with other people. In Daniel's day, they live in captivity. It's very possible that only some parts of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that only some parts of the book of Samuel or the book of the Kings or you know these, these, these records of their people, that only fragments existed. Maybe somebody, a scribe or someone had a copy and they saw what was happening and they gave it to somebody and they said, take this and hold on to it. I remember reading a, uh, a history of the war in the Pacific during World War II and an officer who um, was a, a major in the, the, uh, the military force on the Philippines when the Japanese invaded. And there was a, an emblem of their unit. And he handed it to a, a, a private, uh, you know, the lowest soldier, a private. And he said, you have to keep this. Because he knew as an officer that he would be searched more closely. And he didn't want this this special, this sacred emblem of their, of their unit to be captured, to be a trophy. And so it's possible that a scribe, a priest, a scholar, somebody handed pieces, fragments of parchment and said, take this with you. And they had that, maybe. So maybe Daniel, through his authority and his influence as a high government official, was able to obtain the writings of Jeremiah for the first time, 70 years after entering captivity, maybe. 
It's also, so it's equally possible, the idea that he didn't read it, it's equally possible that he didn't believe it, at least not yet. Imagine being in that first year or two or three of captivity. Everything you've known and loved is gone. You will never see your family again. You will never see your home again. And maybe you know about Jeremiah's prophecy, but you just can't believe it at that point. Let's be honest and say that there are parts of God's word that in certain seasons of our life we have not been able to accept. That's possible. Daniel's human, just like the rest of us. Maybe he hadn't read it. Maybe he couldn't receive it yet. Or maybe he hadn't, it hadn't clicked for him. It might be that he hadn't read it. It might be that he hadn't believed it, but maybe he just hadn't received it. You know, I've been reading the Bible seriously for about 25 plus years. Um, you know, I've been, I've been reading the Bible a long time. And in the last two years, I've read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis through Revelation, and some parts more than that. So I've been reading the Bible a long time. But you know what? When I first started seriously reading the Bible, was in a time of crisis in my life when I was about 15 years old. And there are things that clicked for me as a 15-year-old, but then there are parts of the Bible that I read and I just, I didn't, it didn't click. It didn't, it didn't connect with me. And then maybe as a 23-year-old or a 28-year-old, they did. And now there's things that I'm, you know, 39 years old, and all of a sudden, like, there's something I'm reading part of the Bible, and I go, man, I've never thought of it that way before. Just because my life experience, my age is different, maybe the Holy Spirit speaks to me, and I'm, I'm ready to receive something that I wasn't ready to receive when I was 15 or 25 or whatever. Let's give Daniel the benefit of the doubt. That's, by the way, encouraging as you get older. Maybe, maybe you're... Uh, you know, you're, you're not 25, maybe you're 55, maybe you're 65, you're 70 years old, and you say, oh, I, I don't know, can, can God still speak to me? Yes, and absolutely. I'm encouraged by that, that as I get older, there's more for, for God to show me. That's personally encouraging. But whatever it is, maybe he hadn't read it before, maybe he hadn't believed it before, maybe he hadn't received it before, but for whatever reason, here's Daniel, he's roughly 85 years old, and he believes. And he responds. Spiritual rhythms will lead us, I believe, to spiritual victory. I believe that spiritual rhythms are connected. They're not, they're not isolated. What do I mean by spiritual rhythms? Let me explain. What's the rhythm of your life? When I'm going to go to bed, whenever that is, you know, but I'm going to bed and I have rhythms, and I think all of us do, of how we prepare to go to bed. Um, I turn the TV off. I take Scout, my dog, out for a last outside visit. I go get the coffee ready for tomorrow morning. Uh, so all I have to do is press a button, or if it's you know Saturday morning, I've got the pillow over my head and I'm yelling at my kids, go press the coffee button, you know, whatever it is. Coffee's ready. Go brush my teeth. You know, just do these basic things. Make sure all the doors are locked, right? Those are the rhythms that I do almost every night. I brush my teeth every night. I make sure the door is locked every night. I take the dog out every night. Those are things I do every night. I get in trouble if I don't get the coffee ready every night. Those are rhythms. Spiritual rhythms are the same thing. What are the things that are part of my spiritual lifestyle? Prayer, 
worship, uh, Bible reading, community, these basic spiritual practices or rhythms. And they're not disconnected. They're not disconnected. I, I was talking to a brother recently, uh, and, and I mean, you know, somebody's a brother in Christ. And uh, they go to a different church, and they were complaining how uh, their church wasn't participatory. I show up, and the band plays some music, and the, the pastor preaches, and then I leave, and I'm not participating. And I said, how are you not participating? You show up, and the church joins together in worship. How are you not participating in that? But see, he, he's, as I was talking to him, I think he sees worship as this thing, and it can be good or whatever, but it's disconnected, and he really connects with some other spiritual rhythm like communion or uh, Bible reading or, or discussion. That's what really connects for him, but they are all connected. They are all connected. Daniel prays in response to reading the Scripture. And then when Daniel prays, he receives, he confesses, and then after he confesses, he receives a divine revelation. These series of events are all linked together. Maybe you're not seeing victory in your life, and you're saying, why is it that I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of Bible reading? And it could be that there's some other spiritual rhythm that is out of sync or out of whack in your life that is causing this deficit. Maybe you're saying, why is prayer so dry for me? And like Daniel, you need to read the scripture and let that guide your prayer. Maybe you're saying, why is it that I don't hear from God like I hear other people say they do? And the answer is, well, have you been reading your Bible? Have you been praying? Have you been doing these other things? Have, have you're trying to find victory in this one area, but maybe it's because of this other thing. You know, maybe you've been trying to get in better shape and you say, I just feel like I can't get my energy up. And then you go find out that the issue isn't how your, your, your normal diet necessarily or your exercise regime. Your issue is some vitamin deficiency uh, or, or maybe it's something, you know, uh, internally like, you know, hey, I, I, I need to do this. But there's something that needs to get solved uh, physiologically so that I can get uh, results in my exercise routine. Uh, maybe, you know, there's, there's relational stuff going on and you're saying, why am I just, you know, so frustrated all the time? And, and, and it's linked to some other discipline. I, I honestly believe that, that, that if you look at the spiritual rhythms, the daily rhythms, prayer, worship, Bible reading, community, the larger rhythms of obedience, baptism, seeking the filling of the Spirit, being uh, in communion and taking communion, the gathering of the saints, all of these things build to spiritual victory. Now what happens when Daniel reads the Scripture? He starts to pray. And what does he do when he prays? He confesses. Daniel didn't wake up that morning and start saying, you know what, I need to start confessing. That work of God in his life is directly linked, it's directly linked to these two other things. He read the scripture, he prayed, then he confessed. Now, his confession is really interesting. And I recognize that what I'm going to talk about here is controversial. 
I'm not trying to tell anyone what to think or to, or to come to the same conclusion that I have. I just want to introduce an idea, and then I'm going to say, you go pray about it. You go ask God. Because what happens sometimes is we get really defensive when somebody challenges our way of thinking about the world. I, I had to read a book for school, and when I'm going to write a paper, um, I will write heavily in the book that I'm reading. So, uh, you know, get all marked up and everything. And the, the book was written by a Korean pastor, and he was giving his evaluation of the American church, and I got defensive because I'm an American Christian. And he was speaking to issues from an outsider's perspective into how I have lived most of my life. I was literally writing things like, says you, or how would you know that? Or, yeah, sure, but you know, you, the Christians in Korea have problems too. I was getting defensive. I think that there is a challenge whenever our identity is questioned. And culturally, right, we're Americans. That's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. Part of being American is being very, very individualistic. But Daniel, it says in verse 3, So I turned to the Lord God and I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he's humbling himself. That's the thing I'm asking for you to do is to say, Lord, let me be humble before you and then you can show me whether what Adam says is something I should consider or not. That's all I'm saying. So he humbles himself and then it says, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. But he confesses to sins he had not committed. He confesses to sins that weren't his own individual sins. This book that I had to read for school, I recommend to you. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at a bookstore. Probably can get it at Powell's. It's called The Next Evangelicalism by Dr. Sun Chan Ra. Uh, Dr. Ra is now uh, down in California as a professor at Fuller uh, Theological Seminary. He's born in, in Korea and uh, has, has pastored uh, kind of all over, too. But in it, he kind of talks about confessing sin. And he makes the point that when we became Christians, those of us who, who have faith in Jesus, the, the Bible says that we repent of our sins and we turn to Christ. But did I repent of every sin? Did you repent of every sin you've ever done? No. Somebody becomes a Christian and they say, you know what? I was a liar. And you don't say every lie you've ever said. I mean, maybe there's some major ones you need to kind of get out there and address head on. Uh, you know, somebody says, you know, I was, a, I was a substance abuser. I was a drunkard. But you don't need to say, hey, you know what? On June 24th, 1998, man, I got so hammered that I did this. Unless, you know, and then the next day I got drunk again and I did this. Like, you don't have to lay, list every sin. You identify the deep roots. These are the core sins. I repent of these and everything that stemmed from them. That's a foreign concept to us. To 
confess sin that isn't our own, but it is the root sins of our community. That's what Daniel's doing. He confesses, oh, your, the prophets spoke to our kings. Well, Daniel wasn't the king. Most, just about everyone in Israel wasn't the king. The prophets spoke to our princes. Now, Daniel might have been in that group. He probably was in the elite uh, social and, and political uh, echelons. His family was probably one of the top families in Israel. But most people in Israel weren't. And you spoke to the people and they didn't listen. So he's naming everyone and he's identifying himself with it. Daniel chapter 9 starts out with Daniel confessing the sins of his people before God. But that's not the only place in the Bible we see it. Isaiah chapter 6. It's a really key passage of the scripture for me personally. That's a passage that I come to quite often in my own thoughts. But in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah stands before the presence of God, sees the holiness and the purity and the sinlessness of God's presence, and he says, Woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, the American in me identifies with that because America is a hyper-individualized society. So to confess personally, I can, I can get with that. But then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. So he confesses the sin of his whole people. Whoa, wait a minute there. That I have a harder time connecting with because I don't want to be held responsible for what you do. I don't want to be held responsible for what the church down the road or across the country does and it gets on TV and it just looks horrible and I go, oh, that's not me. I, I had nothing to do with those guys. But I'm in the same body of Christ. I confess the same faith. Now, somebody might say, well, yeah, but those are Old Testament examples. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, Jesus addresses seven letters to seven individual churches. And he says, I have this against you collectively. But there were probably people in that church that hadn't done whatever Jesus was talking about. Let's be honest. I mean, we are individuals. And we know that there are people who stand out and stand against and stand for what's right, even when everybody else is doing what's wrong. So, you know, when Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and he says, you've done all these great things, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. You don't love God the way that you did at the beginning. I bet there was probably somebody in the church in Ephesus who said, I haven't left my first love. I know that I still love. I love God more than I did when I first became a Christian. But yet collectively, the sin of that church was a lack of love. Like I said earlier, we are a hyper-individualized society. Who is the patron saint of American society? It's the individual. John Wayne, the, the steady, silent loner, is the, is the ideal man for the greatest generation and for, for a lot of the baby boomers. The, 
you know, the individual, the person finding freedom and self-expression and doing their own thing, that's the, that is the typical idealized person for younger baby boomers, for Generation X, for millennials, and for Gen Z and everyone else, right? Literally, every Disney movie is about somebody from some culture, and the whole point is that they ignore what their family wants, they go do their own thing, and then their family realizes that they need to be an individual. Think about it. That is literally the plot of every Disney movie ever. We're hyper-individualized, and we don't know how to talk about community living, communal living, how to confess communally, how to say, you know what, I didn't do this, but it's the sin of my people. I didn't do this, but it's the sin of my family. I didn't do this, but this is the sin of my church. We don't know how to do it. In fact, not only that, but the people who have identified the need to do it, because we're so hyper-individualized as Americans, we have a hard time talking about it without talking about it in individual terms. Now let me not beat around the bush. I'll be straight about this. There is a part of the church right now, the church in America, the church here in the Portland area, there is a part of the church of Jesus. There is a part of our family of faith. There is a part of the people who we will be in heaven with for all eternity. And they are asking us to confess a communal sin. What, what is the original sin, the, the, the big core foundational sin of America. Racism, slavery, imperialism, all kind of would be ones that could be named. And right now, there are, are parts of the church that are saying, we're just asking that you acknowledge that. And it's tough because we take that and say, do you want me to take the blame for slavery? You know, if you're me, the Dalhannocks, we didn't come here until 1903. Alexander Dalhannock, my great-grandfather, my bisabuelo. I learned the, the word for great-grandfather in Spanish uh, this week. I'm, learning, I'm working on my Spanish right now, and last week I learned that. But my great-grandfather, Alex, last Dalhannock born in Europe. He was born in Vienna, Austria in 1903, six months later, his family got on a boat and came to America. And we didn't own slaves. We came here after slavery. We lived in the north. We, didn't, we weren't part of segregation. We were immigrants. In fact, our name Dalhannock is probably not how they spelled it. It probably should be Dolanik. Uh, with some E's and the apostrophes in places that I don't understand and all of that, you know, but somebody at Ellis Island, you know, just changed how we spelled it and said, that's how you spell your name now. So why should I confess? As far as I know, now I could be wrong, there's enough question marks in my family's general history that maybe somebody owns slaves, but I don't think so. I think my family's free of that sin. Why should I confess? There's something about communal confession that doesn't say I did that but it acknowledges this is an issue imperialism is one of America's sins we're colonizers I actually saw this played out 
among white people in England. Because the church in England in the 90s had just declined so significantly that other places were sending missionaries to England. America was sending missionaries to England. Um, I remember uh, preaching the gospel on the streets with a brother named George from Malawi. And, and he was from Malawi, which had been a colony in Africa. And I was from America, which had been a colony in, in, in America. And we were back preaching the gospel to the country that had colonized our, our countries. And there were churches started by Americans. And then if the pastor would leave, he would get another American to come. The British were, were almost never put in places of authority or power within those churches. They weren't trusted. The church I was at, the first church I served at in England was, was started in 1998. Only two years ago, four pastors later, did they have a British pastor. This isn't, you know... It, what I'm saying is that idea of imperialism, it, that original sin, played out in the life of that British church. We're hyper-individualistic, so we don't understand how to say, you know what, communally, I didn't do this, but this is our people's issue. And if we can't acknowledge it, if we can't call out our people's issue, how can we repent, and how can we avoid it going forward? To be biblically connected with each other communally, to be biblically uh, confessional as a community, it challenges our American identity of individualism. And I know what I just said is controversial. I know what I just said is something that people are going to, some people have a hard time with. First of all, I would invite you to Join our Zoom small group this week because we talk on the Wednesday night Zoom groups about the Sunday morning sermon. I'd invite you to be part of that. Discuss it. Let's work it out together in community. I'd invite you to pray about it. I'm not saying this is what we have to do or that everything is 100% right. Like I said, I think sometimes the people who are calling the white church in America to uh, confess institutionalized racism or to confess white supremacy since they, as Americans, only know how to talk about it in individualized terms, I think they, they, they put it on individuals instead of just saying we need to confess together as a community. So I'm not saying I have an answer to all this. I'm just saying we need to consider it and ask the Lord. But here's the thing. I, I really do believe this. When we walk in, in victory that comes from healthy spiritual rhythms, prayer, worship, builds to confession, builds to an openness to receive God's word. And then we respond to what we read in God's word or what we hear from God's word. As we walk in that victory, we'll disciple other people. Daniel wrote this down so that the third or even fourth generation after the original captivity, those whose grandparents or great-grandparents were taken from Jerusalem and brought to, to Babylon, and now it's three or even four generations later, 70 years, and he's telling them, this is what brought us into captivity, and you need to know it, and you need to say this is the original sin of the Jewish people so that we don't make the same mistake again, so that we don't go back to Jerusalem and rebuild only to be brought into captivity again. 
The other thing that confessing our sins does is it helps tell our story. I, I know people that have shared with their sons and their daughters and they've said, you know what the original sin of, of our family is? It's, it's drunkenness and we were drunks and we were fighters and we couldn't keep a job down. That was the story of my uncle. It was the story of my grandfather or whoever. For my family, it's divorce. It's divorce. You know, men didn't stick around. My, my mom is the first generation in generations of her family going back, as far as we know. It's the first time a man stuck around. I am the first generation where, where the kids knew a father who didn't leave. On Angie's side of the family, my kids are the first generation going way back because on both sides of our family, divorce and unfaithfulness and broken homes, that was the original sin of both sides of our family. And, and one of my goals is to call it out, to confess it, and then to say, we will not walk that way. We will walk humbly, God willing, and repentantly by God's grace so that we stand not in the sin of our family, but in the renewed victory that God gives people. And I want to say and be honest, hey, we aren't going to, I, I didn't, I've, I've never been knowingly racist to anyone. I don't think I've ever caused uh, oppression to anyone. But you know what? I know that it's not just, oh, that's another part of America, that's South. But I know the racist history of Washington and Oregon. I, I know that these things are very real. I remember the music teacher in high school you know, one day after class showing me a picture he had of a Klan rally in our town from the 30s. And, he's, and he kind of said, you know, the, those are all the, those young men in that picture, they're all the grandparents that are walking around today. Do you think that just went away? Redlining, uh, the way that different neighborhoods, we know statistically, it's not opinion, it's statistical fact. We know that different neighborhoods are policed differently depending on whether they're a white neighborhood or a black neighborhood. We can confess that and say no more. I didn't do it, but we aren't going to live that way. And that's the, 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 ex the exhortation, the encouragement, the challenge that Daniel leaves for us. This was the sin of my people but we aren't going to walk that way. If anything I've said made you mad, email me. I'll call you. I'll Zoom with you. I'll hear you out. Come to the Zoom group. Let's talk about it. All I'm saying is let's consider whether there isn't a biblical precedence for us as Christians confessing the sins of our people not because I did it or you did it, but because we did it. And saying, God, heal us and heal our land. God bless you. We'll see you this week.